Bibles, open up to the book of Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 7 through verse 19. Mark chapter 3, verse 7 to verse 19. The title of today's message is Set Apart for More. Set Apart for More. Mark chapter 3, verse 7. If you're not there, it will be on the screens. The Bible says, But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him, and the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him know. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of Thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him, and they went into a house, says the word of the Lord. You know, Mark chapter 3, verse 7 through 19 is, it's really kind of an interesting passage. It's one that if you're, if you're not careful as you're reading through your Bible, that you can kind of just scoot past and kind of just breeze through without really taking a second thought on what exactly is happening in these eight verses here. Um, from a distance, it seems to maybe merely just kind of be this connecting transitionary passage uh, from, from the first year of Jesus' ministry to now going into the back two years of Jesus' ministry. I mean, even myself. So when I prepare my messages, I, I, I prepare the passage. I, I know what passages I'm going to preach uh, far in advance. So, so I knew that on November 19th, I'll be preaching Mark 3, 7 through 19. And when I was just coming up to this, this day and I was looking at the passage, just praying on it, thinking about it, I'm not going to lie to you, I was a little bit worried. <laughs> I looked at this passage and I was like, man, this is going to be a tough one to kind of go through. Because, I mean, the truth is there's, there's really no theological implications in this passage. There's no doctrinal truth. Uh, there's not even like a great, exciting story that happens. Um, I mean, there is some excitement, but it's, it's really a recap of what we've already seen through the gospel of Mark. I mean, Jesus heals, Jesus casts out demons, Jesus calls people to himself, you know, but as I began to study and meditate on the scripture this week, I, I, I believe that there's a, a great exhortation and encouragement for us to be found in this passage this morning. You know, as you look at this passage, it's really a, a, pivotal point in Jesus's ministry. It's a point where Jesus is so overwhelmed with the crowds and the multitudes that are coming towards him. And he's trying to figure out and make a decision on how best to minister going forward. 
And I think what we find in our text this morning is that in order to expand his gospel reach, Jesus purposefully calls 12 to more. And like I said, that's the title of today's message, Set Apart for More. Let us pray and then we'll dive into the passage. Dear Lord, again, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your word, Lord. Lord, I pray that as we look at these eight verses, that you would speak to us this morning, God. God, that you would hide me behind the cross, that you would empty me of self, fill me with your spirit, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would challenge us and that you would help us this morning, Lord, you would encourage us, God. God, that you would draw us back to yourself, to serving you, to being with you, God. And that through the preached word that we would leave here, change this morning, God. We love you. Thank you for all you do in Christ's name. Amen. Before I begin to dive into verses 7 through 19, I first want to go back to verse 6. Because in verse 6, it kind of sets up the background for what exactly is going on. So look at Mark 3, verse 6 with me. Verse 6 says, And the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. All right, so in Mark, Mark chapter 3, verse 6, Jesus has just finished angering the Pharisees, all right? This is what we looked at last week. It, uh, the, the Pharisees were the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and they were mad because Jesus had broken their Sabbath tradition. Jesus had, had healed a man with a deformed hand on the Sabbath. You know, this isn't the first time in Jesus' ministry that he's angered the religious elites. They were mad at Jesus when he claimed equality with God. They were mad at Jesus when he uh, refused to fast. They were mad at Jesus when he broke their Sabbath tradition. Listen, they were mad at Jesus when he sat and ate with sinners and tax collectors. And now they're mad at Jesus because he's not holding to these man-made traditions which they've built up. Luke says in his account that, that the Pharisees were filled with rage. They were filled with rage because Jesus healed a man's deformed hand on the Sabbath. I mean, obviously they were filled with something because Mark tells us in verse 6 that they left the synagogue to go and plot how to destroy Jesus, how to, how to kill Jesus. I mean, just think how wild of a thought this is. I mean, Jesus has not hurt anybody. Jesus hasn't done nothing wrong. Actually, quite the opposite. Jesus has been healing and helping people ever since he began his public ministry. Yet they're mad because Jesus has came on the scene as kind of this new religious leader. And in the process, he has began to destroy and dismantle and just really tear down all that the religious leaders of the day had built. Listen, he was dismantling their rules their traditions, their false beliefs about what it meant to know and to be close to God. The religious leaders wanted Jesus dead. And Jesus knew that they wanted him dead. So Jesus goes on the run. This brings us to our passage this morning in verse 7. It says, but Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. Matthew says in Matthew twelve fifteen. but when Jesus knew it, when Jesus knew that the Pharisees were plotting to kill him, that he withdrew to the sea. I mean, Jesus knew that there was going to be a day where he would ultimately be, um, have to die on the cross, but apparently the day was not yet. As Jesus sees this threat, he sees it in danger, and he takes his disciples, and he runs. But we see that as Jesus is heading towards the sea, that he's not alone. Look at verse 7 with me. It says, a great multitude from Galilee followed him. And from Judea and Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, those from Tyre and Sidon, a great 
multitude. So when Jesus first began his public ministry, the, the first miracle that we saw in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus cast out the unclean spirit in the synagogue. And Mark said that as a result, Jesus' fame spread throughout all of Galilee. And then we saw Jesus heal the leper. And Mark told us that after Jesus healed the leper, Jesus couldn't go back into the city because his fame was spreading so much. There was crowds that were there that were going to surround him because they wanted some of Jesus. And now as we come to our text this morning, we find that Jesus' fame has spread past Galilee, that it's really spread all throughout the Mediterranean. And I want you just to recognize this how significant this is and the, mag- the magnitude of this. You know, it's not like us today where we have a guest preacher that comes and he's going to be back tomorrow and I pull out my phone and I call my friend in Cincinnati and say, hey man, I know you're 45 minutes away, but jump in your car, come down here and come listen to this guest preacher, right? They didn't have phones. They didn't have ways to um, quickly get a message out. It was, it was mouth to mouth, you know, and the message of Jesus and the power of Jesus was spreading all throughout the Mediterranean. Mark says this crowd got so big that Jesus was afraid that he was going to be crushed. I mean, his fame had become dangerous. It got to the point where Jesus tells him, he, he goes to his disciples and he says, get a boat ready. Like, have a boat out in the sea. So that way, when these crowds begin to surround us and they are about to crush us, we can run to our boat, jump in, and escape into the sea. You know, I, I don't know about y'all, but I, I do not like crowds. I'm not a crowd person. If I can avoid a crowd, I will. I'm not going to go to no festival that has a large crowd. I'm not going to go to no concert that has a large crowd. I mean, today's society, I don't even like walking through the mall anymore. You know, and I can just imagine that, you know, these hordes of people, that, that just the danger that Jesus faced, these hordes of people are trying to get to him, trying to touch him, trying to be healed by Jesus. You know, and as these multitudes begin to come towards Jesus, I want you to notice something. Why are they coming to Jesus? I mean, these, 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 these people are from all over the place. You have people from the north, people from the east, people from the south. And, not, and then on top of that, it's not even just Jews. There's Gentiles that are seeking Jesus. Tyre and Sidon, Idumea are Gentile cities. And these Gentiles are flocking to this Jewish Messiah. And the question is why? Well, look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, When they heard how many things he was doing, came to help. Now, I, I want to be careful here because we know Jesus tells us that for majority of the crowd, their motivation for wanting to be near Jesus was not the right motivation. They wanted Jesus for his miracles. They wanted Jesus for what he could do for him. However, they were coming. <laughs> they were coming. And listen, church, if People were coming from everywhere because something was happening. People were flocking to Jesus because there was an excitement. There was, a, there was a buzz. Jesus was impacting lives. He was transforming families. He was impacting communities. And it was contagious. Like there's this testimony of all these people who have been touched by Jesus. And they're going out to their communities. And they're telling what Jesus has done. And now all these people want to be a part of what is going on. You know, there's this ongoing debate. It really used to be debated a lot more, but it's still debated today in the church world about the attractional model of church, okay? So what the attractional model is, it's this idea that you try to make people as comfortable as possible in order to get them into 
your church, all right? So it's, you know, all the cliches, right? The fog machines, the dark rooms, the cafes in the lobby. So we make it as comfortable as possible so unbelievers want to come to our church. We'll attract them here, and then we can share the gospel with them. And it was a church growth method that was used. And I want you to understand, I'm not, I'm not bashing that method. I'm not even saying I have a problem necessarily with, with new modern stuff. Actually, I, I like a lot of the new church designs, right? But, but the whole reason I bring this up is because in trying to attract believers, I think so many churches really started to get lost in the weeds. Listen, the greatest attractor to Christianity is Christ. The greatest attractor to Christianity is Christ. John 12, 32 is one of my favorite verses in, in the Bible. In John 12, 32, Jesus says, If I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Listen, Jesus says, he says, listen, you don't have to do all the programs. You have to put on all the games, all the shenanigans to get people in here. Jesus says simply that if, if you exalt me, that if you center on me, that if you lift me, that if you proclaim Christ, then I will do the hard work of drawing men to myself. You know, it's so crazy when, when, when you think about it. We sit back in our churches, we cry, complain because our congregations are growing. Well, nobody wants to go to church anymore. And, you know, I think we, we really need to ask ourselves the hard question of, what reason have we given our community to desire the things of God? What reason have I given them? What, what, what would compel them to come to my church? Listen, my son doesn't want to go to the playground that's beat down and broken and rust is full of it and the slide is missing. Listen, I don't want to take my car to the mechanic where I know that when I leave the garage, it's going to be in worse condition than it was when it got there. No, my son wants to go to the playground that's, that's exciting, that's, that's fun. You know, I want to take my, mechanic, my car to the mechanic that I know that when my car leaves there, it's going to be in better condition and better shape than it was when I first put it in there. Listen, the, the truth is simple. Dead things don't grow. They don't. Dead things do not grow. And listen, I'm not propagating that we make church about entertainment and comfort, obviously. I just told you about the flaws of the attractional model that church should be the thing or that Christ should be the attractant that we are using. But what I am saying is that churches should be a place where people encounter the transformative, life-changing power of the gospel. Listen, church should be a place that is so full of hope. Church should be a place that is so full of Joy that is thriving with vibrant community so that when outsiders look in, they say, I want a part of that. Just this past Tuesday, I had a gentleman that came up to the church asking about our turkey drive. He was saying that his wife saw the Facebook post that we were having the turkey drive. And he said he was talking with his wife. He saw it was on, that the church was on Needmore, but he wasn't exactly sure what church it was and so I just got to talking with him a little bit, and he was telling me how he drives past our church twice, oh, twice a day, uh, going to and from work, and how he, you know, doesn't live too far from here. He lives in the community, and you know, after I got done talking with him, I just began to wonder. My mind got to thinking about how many people live within our community. How many people live within a five, ten minute? radius of Landmark Baptist Church, yet have no idea who we are. Yet if you ask them, where's Landmark Baptist Church at? They wouldn't have the slightest 
clue. You know, I guarantee you that even the people who didn't come to Jesus still knew who he was. They still heard about what he was doing. And listen, I just, I believe that we should want that to be true about our church today. That even if a person never steps foot into this building, that they know what Landmark Baptist Church is because they hear about the work that God is doing in these walls and through his people. So Jesus is doing a great work. And this great work attracts a great multitude. And then this great multitude reveals a great need. Why were people coming to Jesus? They were searching for hope. They were looking for something to help them, something to satisfy, something to bring them the hope that they lacked. You know, and as we look at our text this morning, can I, can I just remind you that the need for Jesus is just as great today as it was during Jesus's day. In John 10, 10, Jesus says that he came so that you could have life. Hey, but he didn't stop there. He says in life abundantly. Listen, Jesus came to offer us abundant life, and he does, throw, does so through the forgiveness of sins. First Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Listen, church, never forget that the main reason that you need Christ is not so that you can feel better, not so that you won't be depressed anymore, not so that all of your problems will go away. But the main reason that there is this great need, the the greatest need in your life is that because of your sin, you are separated from God and condemned to hell. Listen, but as Paul Tripp says that the cross allows unholy people to look at a holy God and have hope. There's a great need for the gospel in this world. And it's estimated that 3.2 billion people across the world have never even heard the gospel. You know, we come to church and we hear the gospel repeated to us week in and week out and we continue to reject it. Yet there's people that have never once had the good news of Christ proclaimed to them. In Ohio alone, I was looking up just some different numbers and In Ohio alone, 53% of Ohioans, so half of Ohioans, identify as Protestant Christians. So those are Christians that believe in salvation in Christ alone. So half of Ohioans, which, which we see is playing out in our world as we see as we go to the booths, the decisions that we are making as Ohioans, that we are far from God. Out of the 50% that, that don't claim to be Protestant Christians, 25% of Ohioans identify as nuns. What that means is that they have no religious affiliation at all. Listen, we live in a world that is far from God. We live in a city that is far from God. We live in communities that are far from God. And the result is that they're empty. They're depressed. They're broken. They're unsatisfied and constantly longing for more. Listen, and as Christians, we have the answer. And I was talking with one of my friends this past week. He just, he's been struggling uh, really bad, really, really heavily. And 
had a rough life, um, rough couple of years, lost a lot of his loved ones and you know, relationship problems. And he's just telling me about all these different things that he's tried to do to find satisfaction. You know, he's telling me he drinks every night and, you know, he thought this girlfriend was going to be the one. And he's searching for satisfaction and all these different things. And he's preaching me the God told him, I said, bro, you're preaching me the gospel. Because he tells me that every time he tries to find satisfaction in these things, that they never fully satisfy. You know, I just got to the point where I told him, I said, can, can I just be completely honest with you? You need Christ. <laughs> Listen, you need Christ. Listen, there was a great need all around us, in our families, our, our friends, the people that we work with. There is a world that is lost, condemned, and hopeless. Listen, we have the hope for broken marriages, the antidote for depression, the remedy for addiction, and by doing a great work, we can attract a great multitude and in turn meet a great need. Salvation in Christ. So in verses 7 through 12, we have really just this brief representation of Jesus' ministry as a whole. People flock to Jesus and amazing things happen. Right? I mean, as we've seen throughout the Gospel of Mark, people come to Jesus, amazing things happen. People come to Jesus, they're healed. People come to Jesus, demons are cast out. And as we continue through the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see this repeating theme. People flock to Jesus and amazing things happen. But then as we move from verse 12 to verse 13, there's kind of this shift that happens. Jesus is driven from the city to the sea. But then as we go into verse 13, we find that now Jesus goes up into the mountain. 13, and he went up on the mountain. Luke adds a significant detail that, that Mark does not in his account. In Luke's account, in Luke 6, 12, Luke says, Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. So why did Jesus escape to the mountain? To pray, Right? So why did Jesus go to the mountain to pray? Well, I, I believe that Jesus went to the mountain to pray because he saw this great need that was before him, and he, he recognized his ministry limitations. I believe that his great need was flocking to him. I mean, his multitudes are flocking to him, and Jesus realized that, that, that he needed more people to help spread the gospel and usher in the kingdom. And, and you know, you can look at me and say, well, how? How you come to that conclusion, that's not what the text says, which technically you're right. It doesn't clearly say that's exactly what Jesus prayed. But look at verse 13 with me. Let's look at verse 13 to 15. I'll tell you how I got there. He went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed 12, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. So Jesus leaves this multitude on the shore. He goes out to the sea. He escapes to the mountain and he prays. And after Jesus gets finished praying in the morning, Jesus calls 12 disciples to himself to be set apart for ministry. While in verses 7 through 12, we see the great need amongst the crowd, amongst those that were flocking to Jesus, I believe in verses 13 to 19, we now begin to see this great need amongst the called, amongst those who are already following Jesus. Matthew 9, 37, Jesus says to his disciples, the harvest 
is plentiful, but the laborers few. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. You know, we, 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 we quote that verse all the time. But have you ever actually truly thought about what Jesus is trying to convey? Jesus doesn't say that seeds are ready to be planted. Listen, Jesus doesn't say that the sprouts are ready to be watered. No, Jesus says that the harvest is already ready for the picking. Jesus says that that contrary to our cynical hearts, there are people that are already willing and wanting to accept the gospel. Essentially, what Jesus is saying is that that really, in, in actuality, there's more people ready to accept the gospel. The harvest is plentiful than there are willing to share the gospel. The laborers are few. First Baptist Church of Jacksonville's purpose statement is reaching all of Jacksonville with all of Jesus. You know, I, I'll be honest with you. I really like that motto, reaching all of Dayton with all of Jesus. That sounds good, right? You know, but can I tell you that if we are ever to reach all of our community with all of Jesus, it's going to take all of us. So Jesus spends the night praying, Father, what do I do? Crowd is out of control. My reach is limited. And he decides in the morning to set apart 12 for a greater purpose. Look at verse 14, 15 with me. Then he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. All right, so now in, in calling the 12, there are two things that I want for us to see for ourselves this morning. The first is the priority and the second is the purpose. Look at the priority of the 12. Look at verse 14. He appointed 12 that they might what? that they might be with him, all right? So Jesus appoints 12 to be with him. <laughs> Listen, the crowds came to Jesus because of what Jesus could do. But now Jesus is calling the 12 because of who he is, so they can be with him because he is God the Son and the Son of God because he is the Messiah. He says, come close. He, listen, Jesus is calling for intimacy with the 12. You know, often we think that what pleases Jesus most is doing for Jesus. But Jesus says, before you do for me, first be with me. He says, sit with me. You know, this is a word for some of us today, my, myself included, who often get so busy doing for Christ that we would neglect being with Christ. That are more eager to serve than we are to pray. I'm reminded of the story of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10. Martha is busy in the kitchen preparing a meal for Jesus. And the whole while her sister Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. Martha's doing and Mary is being Mary is taking in Jesus. She's sitting around Jesus. She's spending time with Jesus. And Martha, like, like any sister, gets mad, <laughs> right? She gets mad. She comes out of the kitchen and, you know, Mary is here at the feet of Jesus. And then Martha gets in the face of Jesus. 
And Martha says, why don't you tell my good-for-nothing sister to get up and come help me in the kitchen? It's like, <laughs> it's like you know, don't you know that you're supposed to be serving Jesus? And Jesus looks at Martha, and he tells Martha that Mary has chosen the good portion. Chosen the good portion. Listen, Jesus wasn't saying that serving wasn't important. Trust me, we're going to get there in a little bit. But what Jesus is saying is don't be so distracted with task that you miss out on him. So first, the disciples are called to be with Jesus. But then they are called to do for Jesus. Listen, when you break it down into its simplest, most fundamental form, what is the reason that Jesus calls the 12 to himself? I believe in the simplest form, the reason ultimately he calls the 12 to himself is so that out of an overflow of Jesus's teaching and Jesus's guidance and being with Jesus, that they would then be able to help build the kingdom of God. Mark says that he might send them to preach, to heal the sick, and to cast out demons. Listen, while their priority is intimacy with Jesus, their purpose is to preach the gospel. The 12 were set apart for gospel ministry. The Greek word for send them out is apisteo. It's the same word that we translate into apostles. So Jesus is calling them out as apostles. Now, now I don't want to confuse you too much, but understand that here in this text, it's not talking about the office of apostle just yet, though these 12 would go on to be apostles. But the biblical definition of an apostle is somebody who has witnessed the resurrected Jesus. Jesus has not resurrected yet. But rather, so rather than the office of apostle, what he's talking about is the function of an apostle. Apostle literally translates to a sent out one. So in other words, Jesus has called his, these 12 from being disciples, from being students, from sitting at his feet and following him to now being apostles or sent out once. In other words, what Jesus has done is that he has charged his followers to go from merely following Jesus to now laboring for Jesus. Why? Because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Listen, the disciples had been set apart for more. They had been set apart to be catalysts of change, to proclaim the glorious gospel, to usher in the kingdom of heaven on earth. You know, at this point in Jesus's Life. Jesus is about a year into his public ministry. And at this point, at, the, at this point, Jesus would have had multitudes of people that were truly following him. He would have had a, a bunch of people that, that accepted the gospel, that understood that the kingdom of God was at hand, and that had become his disciples. But apparently, none of them had put feet to their faith. And how Jesus takes these 12 and he calls them to so much more. He calls them to maximize their Christian life, to not just sit there, but to do something. You know, I don't believe myself wrong to say this morning that I believe this is the same call to us to be with Jesus and to do for Jesus. You know, my hope is that there will be some here this 
morning that decide, that say, you know, I want to be set apart for more. I want to be sent out. I want to be used more than I'm being used right now. And I want you to understand that while not everyone is called to preach, everyone is called to serve. Everyone is called to more. You know, and rather than getting stuck in the weeds of what does more look like for you, you know, I think that a better thing to do is just ask yourself the question, what can I do? What can I personally do to advance the gospel and build the kingdom? You know, I fear that often we get this idea in our head that in order for me to be useful for the kingdom, I have to stand behind a pulpit. That in order for me to be useful for the kingdom, I have to teach a class. That, you know, I could be useful for the kingdom if only I had a little bit more money. If, if only I was a little bit younger, then I would be able to do for you, Jesus. You know, we have these excuses. We, you know, if only this or if only that. But what I want you to understand is that gospel ministry takes many different forms. All right. Listen, gospel ministry can look like teaching a class. It can look like preaching a sermon, but it can also look like sweeping floors and cleaning bathrooms. Listen, gospel ministry can look like cutting grass and trimming bushes. It can look like visiting those are sick. It can look like reaching out to believers and brothers that you haven't seen in a while and checking on them. It can look like cooking a meal for those who can't provide for themselves. Listen, it can look like serving in nursery. It can look like leading a children's ministry. You know, the thing is, we we have to be careful of not being so afraid to get involved because we feel inadequate. You know, that, that, that's really what I'm saying. When I'm saying I, I can't be a part of gospel ministry because I can't preach a message, what you're saying is I don't have anything to offer the Lord. I, I, I'm inadequate. I can't, I can't do anything. That's just, that's not true. Listen, God is not looking for giftedness. God is not looking for talent. Listen, God is not looking for, for the person that has it all, all together. He's not looking for the person with the most ability, but rather all that God is looking for is willingness. And I'm going to give you some practical tips real quick, okay? When it comes to serving, when it comes to, because I know that that can be a question in people's minds. You know, I want to serve. I want to get involved. I want to do more, but I don't know what to do. I don't know where I can fill a void. I think there's really three questions that, that you can ask yourself that hopefully will help you to be able to find a place to plug in. I think the first question is, what am I good at? You know, what, is there something that God has gifted you in? Is there something that God has enabled you to be able to do well? And, and I know some of you are going to say, oh, I'm not good at nothing. Well, listen, that's not true. <laughs> but even if it was, the second question you can ask yourself is, what am I passionate about? You know, what is it that sets me on fire for the Lord? What is it that I find joy in doing that can help to usher in the kingdom? And I think the third question really is, where is there a need? You know, what, what, where is there in my church? Do I see something in my church or see a place in my church where I feel like there's a need that needs to be filled? And if I see that, rather than complaining and crying and talking about my church and the people and saying, oh, well, they don't know what they're doing, why don't you step up and step in and fill the void that might be there? Matthew 10 says that when Jesus called the 12, he gave them authority that he sent them out under his authority. 
You know, that's the comfort of stepping out by faith. The comfort of stepping out by faith is that when you say, God, use me for more. Listen, the same God who sets you apart will empower you. He'll empower you. He'll give you the ability to be able to do what you need to do. Listen, these, these 12 men were not gifted in any way. <laughs> these 12 men had, had no talents. They had no ability, but they were willing. Look at verse 16. I want you to just look at this list. Simon, who he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot. You know, we don't know a whole lot about every last one of these 12, but the one truth we do know is that they were common, ordinary men. As a matter of fact, when you get to the book of Acts, in Acts 4.13, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived, so they, they see Peter and John, and this is what the people are thinking about Peter and John. They perceive that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. They were astonished at how God was able to use uneducated, common people who were willing to be used by the master. You know, not only were they ordinary men, but, but it's, it's, it's interesting because even outside of Christ, some of them would have never associated with one another. Simon the Canaanite is also called Simon the Zealot. And the Zealots were a political faction during Jesus' day that were Jewish men that basically were trying to incite rebellion against the Romans. They wanted to overthrow the Roman government. And so you have Simon the Zealot right here that is, hates the Romans and wants to incite rebellion against them. And then over here you have Matthew the tax collector. And Matthew the tax collector was a Jewish boy that worked for the Romans. He is this Jewish boy that, that took advantage of Jews, that scammed Jews, that got over on his fellow Jews in order to profit the Romans. You know, if they would have came across one another in the street, they probably would have tried to kill each other, to be honest. Yet, here they are listed in the 12 together because of the one commonality of Christ. And that's what the gospel does. The gospel breaks down barriers. You know, the gospel tears down walls that we put up, that society puts up. You know, the gospel takes people who feel inadequate and gives them power. Listen, church, this is basically what I'm trying to help you see in this passage. There was a great need. (laughs) The harvest is plentiful. The laborers few. And because of that, I want to encourage you this morning to make a decision to do more, to make a decision to be set apart for more, to make a decision to join in on the work that Christ is already doing. Listen, because Jesus died, rose, and ascended, can I tell you that the gospel still works? The gospel has not lost any power. Listen, listen, the gospel is not of no effect, but rather the gospel was in full force this morning, just as much as it was when Jesus walked the earth. And so because of that, we should all be urged and encouraged to not be spectators of what God is doing, but rather to jump in and to join and become participants. To go from merely following 
to laboring, to decide to be set apart for more. Every head bow and eyes closed.